I'm going to read Luke 2, 1 through 7, and just stand a little bit longer. Once you're seated, I alone must continue to stand. So um, let's read this together. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, which was a feeding trough, just so you'll know, where the animals ate their feed, because there was no room for them in the inn. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that we will latch hold of by faith the real meaning of Christmas, and I pray that if anyone is here today that doesn't really know you through Christ, you will draw them near. And I pray that we will leave today, Lord, rejoicing over the real reason for the season. Jesus, the Son of God, in his name we pray. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him one more time, Merry Christmas is going to be good. Amen. All righty. Now, everything about the birth of Jesus was very, very carefully orchestrated by the hand of God. The God of the Bible is providential and sovereign. That means he rules his universe. Most of what God does, most of us never see. We're not aware of it. But he is shaping history. Everything is racing towards the end of time when Christ Jesus will appear again and time will end as we know it and history will end as we know it. So even though it looks sometimes like God is nowhere in control, God is really ultimately in control. And when it came to the birth of his only begotten son, I assure you, God was orchestrating, ordering every detail of the birth of Jesus. And that's why I believe the difficult circumstances surrounding his birth were intentional. Think about it. We have God's only begotten son, the Messiah, God wrapped in skin coming to earth to die for you and me. And yet this King of Kings, Lord of Lords, this Messiah, this predicted Savior, all the prophets look forward to him, all the major prophets, minor prophets, Moses, Abraham, they all look forward to the coming of this one. And so you would expect that he would be born in a palace or a wealthy home, at least in a nice hotel, but he was born out back, behind the Holiday Inn of Bethlehem, into very, very dismal conditions. And I think that's on purpose, because here's what I see. God is a painter, he's an artist, and he, he draws and he gives us illustrations. When I look at this manger and I look at the conditions in which he was born, I see something. I see a parallel. You know what the parallel, parallel is? It's the human heart. That manger, 
the conditions and circumstances surrounding his arrival reminds me of the human heart. And I believe that's on purpose. Because in the human heart, Jesus came to be born within the human heart millions and millions of times over. Most of us in here today can say, yes, he was born in my heart. Jesus said, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. That means you receive a brand new heart, as it were a heart transplant. And so let's look at how. That manger scene is just like the human heart. So, so meet me for a minute at the manger. First, we see that there was no room for them in the inn. There was no room for the arrival of Jesus. When they got there, a no vacancy sign hung in the window of the Bethlehem Hotel as a weary and a bedraggled Mary and Joseph sought refuge after a very, very long journey. I want you to think about this journey for a minute. Mary was nine months and counting pregnant. They had just traveled 90 miles, not in a good time van, not in a bus, not in a nice car, but by donkey. I want all you ladies to think about this, meditate on this, consider this. She's nine months pregnant, great with child, and suddenly they've got to load up, pack up, and take off on a 90-mile journey on a donkey, either riding a donkey, kaboom, 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 or walking. They likely averaged about 10 miles a day. The normal average for travelers in that day was 20 miles a day, but not with a pregnant woman nine months along. It was probably about 10 miles a day. They made their way 90 miles. So for over a week, they journeyed down this road. And here's, here's where the journey took them. It took them through the Judean desert during the winter time, where the average temperature during the day was in the 30s. At night, it was freezing. And it rains constantly at that time of year. So we're talking about terrible traveling conditions, even if you had been in a car, much less a donkey, much less walking. So at night, it reached the freezing mark. It was a long, nasty, miserable journey. And so they finally arrive at Bethlehem. They can't wait to get a room and settle down and wait for the child to come. And they see a no vacancy sign swinging in the window with no other place to go, they turned around and walked slowly around back to a stable, which was the equivalent of a first century parking lot. All that was there was a few donkeys and sheep and dirt and nothing. Now I'm going to ask you a question. It's lonely back there. Lonely. All the laughter and fun and conversation was going on in the hotel. There's nothing back there. Now, doesn't that foreshadow, think with me for a minute, what Jesus would encounter throughout the centuries in terms of men, women, boys, and girls having no room at all for him in the end of their heart? Yeah, this was on purpose. God did this on purpose. God did this on purpose because it's the story of Jesus that more times than not, people have no room for him. The Apostle John tells us that this is the way the whole thing began. When he started his ministry, John says, although he made the world, the world didn't recognize him when he came. 
Even in his own land and among his own people, the Jews, he was not accepted. He was rejected. He was rejected. Only a few, John goes on to say, would welcome and receive him. Only a few out of many. Many are called, few are chosen. Out of all the ones who he went to, only a few accepted him. But to all who received him, he gave the right and the power to become children of God. All they needed to do was trust him to save them. But notice the odds. It's always the minority that have room. The majority have no room. The Gospels also tell us of a rich young man who came to Jesus, but after hearing Jesus encourage him to sell his possessions and follow him, it says he walked away sad because he had great wealth. Watch this. There was room, no room for Jesus in his heart, but there was room for money, but no room for Jesus. Also, one day when Jesus had finished teaching a large crowd of 5,000 people, the Bible makes it very clear that 4,988 of them All but 12 turned and walked away. And he turned to the 12 and said, Are you also going to leave me? Is there no room for me in your life? 4,988 said, There's no room for you in my busy, happening, distracted life. Jesus told a parable once of a rich man who had a great feast and sent out many invitations. And the feast in the parable represents salvation. And the invitations represent God's offer to be saved. This is what Jesus was driving at. A rich man made a feast. The rich man is God. Made a feast and invited people everywhere to come. The feast represents salvation. God's offer to be saved. That's the invitation. And in the parable, everyone that was invited began to make excuses why they couldn't come. One said, hey, I just bought a field. I'm too busy. Please excuse me. I have no room for you right now, Jesus. Maybe later, maybe when I'm retired, maybe when I have my gold watch and I'm, and I'm a little calmer and I've slowed down some, maybe then I will. But you know, I've been around long enough to see if you can't make room for him early on, you rarely do later on. They all began to make excuses. I bought a field. Another one said, I bought five pair of oxen, got me a new car, we would say. And I want to go try it out, so I'll I'll make it later, Jesus. Check me later, Jesus. Been great hearing from you, but not now. Another one just gotten married. Uh Uh-oh. For that reason, he couldn't attend. No room for him in the inn of all these hearts. This was a parable that Jesus made up. He knew the score. He knew that the way he was born into a lonely place, uh, that there was no room for him, no room, that that was going to foretell many, many, many millions and billions of times people would say the same thing. No vacancy in the room of my heart. Yet the invitation still rings out, and I want you to hear the invitation. Revelations 3.20, one of my favorite verses, says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. The door is your heart. I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And if any man hears my voice, if any woman hears my voice, any boy or girl hears my voice, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. That's the invitation. And you know what? We should never get tired of giving that invitation. 
We need to be telling that invitation because right now, all over the world, via the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is knock, 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 knocking on the hearts of people saying, let me in, let me in. Is there any room for me? Can you move that no vacancy sign and make room for me? And I find that people are hungry all over the world. I was eating last week. Went to a restaurant. Uh, I'll go ahead and say the restaurant, Cotton Patch, where all good things happen. We went to the Cotton Patch, and I met two. I had two ministers there with me. One of them is a soul-winning machine. And it was Scott Camp. I was with Scott Camp, our evangelist of a few weeks ago, and another pastor. And we're sitting there talking. The waitress comes up to talk to us and take our order. Before I know it, Scott's talking to her about Jesus. So we just kind of bowed for a minute and let it all happen. She's got her little order pad, and she's ready to take our order. And before I knew it, it went from lunch to church. Seriously. And before I know it, this little girl, this, this, she didn't look any more than 19, 20 years old. This, this young lady bows her head right in the middle of the restaurant and accepted Jesus at the restaurant. Just like that. Tears going down her face. Tears going down her face. And she said, I just can't believe that you talked to me about this because this very week I've been thinking about this. Now, why was she thinking about this? That's why she's thinking about it. Because the Lord is knocking on the hearts of people. And the question is, do you have room for him in the end of your heart? Or are you saying to him later, Jesus, hey, been great hearing from you, but later, hey, I'm, I'm busy here, busy there, got this, got that. Places to go, people to see. I'm a busy guy, busy girl, Lord, you understand. No, there was no room, and that was on purpose. That's on purpose. Have you made room for Jesus in the end of your heart? That's the single most important decision you will ever make. Not what you're going to major in in school. Not who you're going to marry, though that's huge. Not what you're going to do with the rest of Not where you're going to live. The most important decision is when he comes knocking, do you have room for him in the end of your heart? That's what Christmas is all about. Now, there's another thing I see in the manger that's just like the heart. The manger was lonely. The manger was lonely. Nobody was there to greet Jesus when he came into the world but a few animals and Mary and Joseph, and, and, and that was it. That was it. It was lonely out back there, and I believe it was lonely for a reason. God orchestrated that because that manger is a picture of our heart. I recently read that in a world of social media, smartphones, emails, Skype, texting, and so on, we are still in America and in all the West profoundly lonely. We're surrounded by people, but we're lonely. I read a story about a woman who was interviewed who went to the mall just so that a salesperson would say hello to her. Lonely. We're lonely in this world. A recent study by Duke University revealed that many Americans are now perilously isolated. Think about that. It was found that 25% of Americans, 25%, one quarter, one out of four, have no meaningful social support at all. They don't have a single person they can confide in. Is that you? That's why I think local church is so important. Because the church is where we're supposed to fellowship, get to know one another, 
cease being a nameless face in the crowd. That's one of the reasons God gave local church. You ought to take full advantage of it. I even read recently that people that go to church regularly are healthier. So if you can't come for any other reason, get healthy and come to church. Did you know that I read further that over half of all Americans report having no close confidence or friends outside their immediate family? No close friends outside of their family. Over half of Americans run the numbers. That means over 150 million people have no close friend outside their family. Jesus came into a lonely place. And I want to tell you where I think loneliness begins. Loneliness doesn't begin with you not having a friend. Loneliness begins with alienation from God. I've thought this through. I'm convinced of it. See, here's why. We, as human beings, are hardwired to communicate with him, fellowship with him, walk with him, talk with him. It says Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden walked and talked with God regularly. He was their close confidant. They had fellowship with God. And then when sin entered the world, that fellowship, that communion, that life flow was cut off. And I think that was the beginning of man's loneliness and isolation. When he was cut off from his maker, cut off from God. There are people looking for God. They're looking for him in drugs, looking for him in alcohol, looking for him in endless relationships. They just don't know what they're looking for. They're like an amnesiac who knows that something is missing, but they can't remember what. And what it is, is our relationship with God. I love getting up and talking with the Lord. As the song says, and he walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. You see, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to bridge the gap between us and God. The Bible says, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. When you know Christ, let me tell you something. You can be alone and not be lonely. See, alone doesn't mean lonely. Alone doesn't have to result in loneliness. Alone is just alone. I'm alone. There's nobody here right now. Loneliness is when you've got an ache inside and you're hurting because there is a lack of companionship in your life. And I contend and I submit to you that that begins with the lack of companionship with him. And when you know him, you can be alone and not lonely. Jesus said, behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the world. Jesus said, I'm going to read it again. Look, I have been standing at the door and I am constantly knocking. That's the Greek form. That's the Greek verb. Uh, not just I've knocked once, but I am constantly knocking, constantly throughout your life. He comes, he approaches. How about now? How about now? How about now? And if anyone hears me calling him and opens the door, I will come in and fellowship. Do you hear that word? Fellowship. That's friendship. Fellowship. That's companionship. Fellowship with him. And he with me. So I say again, you can be alone and not lonely when you know Christ. Conquering loneliness begins with reconnecting with your maker. Are you connected with him today? Are you connected with him through Jesus? Well, no, Pastor Jeff, I'm connected by my own good works. I'm connected by some other religion. It doesn't really matter what you use as long as you're sincere, right? No, wrong. No. 
Now I'm going to get real narrow on you, and I'm going to sound very unpolitically correct, but watch this. There is no other way to, to plug into the life source of God. If I had a lamp here, and this lamp was, had the bulb, it's ready for fire, it's ready for electric, it's ready, but here it is, it's a lamp, and here's a socket right here, but I notice it's not plugged in. So the lamp can be well-meaning. I'm called to shine. I'm going to shine. Shine! But until somebody picks up that cord and plugs it into the source, it will never live, shine, illuminate. We're the same way. Until we say, Jesus, forgive me, we want to shine, but we're not plugged in. And there's not a whole bunch of optional fixtures. There's only one. So when you say, Jesus, forgive me, he plugs you in. And, that's, and then all of a sudden, you're shining. Jesus said, you're the light of the world now, the salt of the earth. Instead of being a problem, you're an answer. Instead of being a question mark, you're an exclamation point. And I want you to look at what happened to that lonely stable when Jesus was born into it. Suddenly there were angels rejoicing and suddenly shepherds came out of nowhere and and wanted to see the baby Jesus because God had told them through angels that the Messiah had been born. So suddenly the place that had been lonely, dark, and desolate had all kinds of activity, all kinds of joy, and all kinds of people there to see the baby Jesus. So loneliness was transformed into companionship when Jesus was born in that place. Amen. Amen. But I see another thing about that stable, that manger. Here it is. And again, this is intentional. God did this on purpose. This is not by mistake. Not one thing about Jesus was. So it was intentional that not only was it a lonely place, but it was a dark place. It was a dark place. All Joseph had for illumination as Jesus was being born. Think about that. A baby being born at night in the 30s on the ground on a blanket All they had at best was the dim flicker of a wind-blown lantern and whatever light the pale moon provided. That was it. It was a dark place. Dark place. The Bible says that our hearts are dark with sin before Christ comes to live in them. I'm talking about spiritual darkness. I mean spiritual darkness. Our hearts are spiritually dark. No light. No spiritual light until Jesus comes in. Listen to the way the Bible describes it. Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10. The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. Is that a shock to us as we see what's happening in our world today? How many times this week have you said to yourself or to someone else, how could they have done that? How could those terrorists have killed 130 children in a school? How could there be so much violence and rape and pillage and crime. You know why? Because the heart of man is dark without Christ. It's a fallen heart. It is an unredeemed heart. It is a lost heart. And I know what I'm saying goes against the grain of everything our culture tells us, but our culture is not telling us the truth right now about the human heart. We are not okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. We're not okay without him. (laughs) 
Ephesians 4.18 says, And they, those who don't know Christ, are dark in their intellects and are aliens to the life of God because there is no knowledge in them and because of the blindness of their heart. If your heart is blind, then your heart is dark. Jesus described all of mankind as the blind, leading the blind, speaking of the spiritual darkness we live in without him in our hearts. We need a heart transplant. We need our hearts to be changed. We need the light. And you know what's happening right now? I'm sharing light out of the Word of God. This is light. Jesus said, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Listen to what John wrote about Jesus. He said, in him, that is, Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. It's shining right now. He also describes Jesus as the true light, which gives light to every man. The birth of Jesus transformed the stable from loneliness and darkness to companionship and light. And that's exactly what he does to the human heart when we say, come in. Last thing I see, it was an unclean place. Now, i got to tell you the truth. I'm just going to tell you the truth out of the Bible. The truth is that our hearts are unclean until we know him. They're unclean with all kinds of things. Think with me, all that Mary and Joseph encountered when they went behind the inn and got on that blanket and the baby was born was animal smells, dirt, dust, and grime, greed of the newborn baby, Jesus. He was born in an unclean place. It was not sanitary. It was not any place that any woman would want their child to be born. But again, it was by... uh, God's design. That's exactly the way the Bible describes the human heart. Jesus knew the human heart better than anyone else. And he said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what pollutes you, said Jesus. It's the heart. And that's why Jesus said, you have to be born again. You must have a brand new heart. And what a wonderful thing it is when you get a brand new heart. Here's the good news. The good news today is that Jesus came to cleanse our hearts by giving us a brand new heart, a spiritual transplant. We can pray with David and we can say, Lord Jesus, I come to you, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. You know where joy comes from? Joy comes from a clean heart. Joy comes from getting right with God. Joy is an inside job. Joy is not happiness. Happiness requires a happening. Joy doesn't require a happening. Joy requires simply getting right with God, and that's where joy comes from. If America could just call on Jesus, how many, how many pharmaceuticals would be flushed down the toilet because I don't need them anymore because I've got joy unspeakable and full of glory. The Bible says this means that anybody who belongs to Christ has become a brand new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Jesus, watch this now. I want to close with this and I want you to catch this. Here's the Christmas message. Jesus was born in a cradle to hang on a cross. He was born in a cradle to hang on a cross. Jesus was born to die. The trajectory of Jesus' life inexorably, unstoppably, was headed straight for that cross. 
And I love that cross. Now, that may sound macabre to some of you, but, but I love that cross because of what that cross does for you when you go to that cross. Let me ask you a question. You want to know who you really are? Take a trip to the cross. You want to know what your future really is, what your destiny is really made up of? You will find it in that old rugged cross. For Jesus hung on that cross, died on that cross for your sins and mine. And I love the way that cross is shaped. Because here it is. It's horizontal and it's vertical. Let's talk about the horizontal. When I look at that cross like this, we got a great big cross out there uh, in the lawn And we've had truckers pull over, get out of their truck and go up that cross and just bow down and pray. There's something about that cross. That's why there's such an attack against the cross in our country. Crosses being ordered to be removed and all this other nonsense. You know why? Because Satan hates the cross. The devil hates the cross because here's what the cross did. Here's the horizontal. You know what I see when I see that? I see God's arms outstretched saying, let me hug you. Let me love you. Let me hold you. I hear Jesus come unto me with arms outstretched. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me embrace you. Let me hold you. Let me love you. Let me hug you. Let me show you that God really does care. And when you run to that cross, say, okay, hug me. Then you know what he does? Then he takes your hand and he goes vertical. He takes your hand and he places it in God's hand. And you and God are reconciled through the mediator, Jesus Christ. So he hugs you this way and then he takes you this way. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful thing? Thank God for the cross. Amen. Have you run into his arms via the cross? If you don't do it via the cross, you're not plugged in. The cross is the plug. And that's how you come to know him. So watch this. The circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. Perfect illustration of our hearts. No room in the inn. A dark place. A lonely place, a dirty place. But look how it was totally transformed with the birth of Jesus. Light flooded that place. Fellowship and companionship flooded that place. Meaning and purpose flooded that place. Joy flooded that place when Jesus was born in it. So I bring to you a Christmas message today. Here's what it's all about. He was born in a cradle to die on a cross. He died on the cross to be raised from the dead. And he did it for you. Can we stand together? And I'm going to ask us just to bow for a moment of prayer. Can we? Just bow for a moment of prayer. I'm going to ask there to be as little movement as possible because God is touching people right now. Don't distract anyone. Let's just come to him in prayer. If you can say today, you know, Pastor Jeff, I have drifted from God. I used to walk with him really closely. But somewhere along the way, I got distracted.
I got lured away, pulled away, distracted away, whatever. And I haven't been walking with him like I should. But I know I need to. And I want to come home. I want to come home to him. Or you've never in your life gone to that cross and allowed God to embrace you through that cross. You can do it today. What a Christmas present to give yourself to come to Jesus today. With our heads bowed right now, if you can say, Pastor, I, I have. I've drifted. And boy, this season, I know it's time for me to come home. Can you raise your hand right where you are? I need to come home to him. Amen. Now, how many can say, Pastor Jeff, I don't know that I've ever given my heart to the Lord. And today, I would like to do that. I'm going to pray for you right where you are. If you can say, that's me, would you raise your hand up? Let me see you. And we're going to believe God. God bless you. Bless you. Let's pray together right now. I want you to say with me, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins, rising from the dead, that I could be saved. Lord, I give you my heart. I want you to come into my heart. Be born there. And thank you for coming in by the Spirit of God. I give my all to you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now.